Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you here with me today. In this episode, I share with you a Dharma talk that I gave recently where I tried to explore um, how, in a way, how consciousness is conditioned by the conditioning factors of, of primarily early childhood. And that's the example I use here, how my the dynamics of my primary conditioning complex, that's my family, how that um, shaped my consciousness and, and, and the way that I tend to perceive and, and see things. Um, and, and really what I try to get to at the heart here is how oftentimes there's a kind of conditioning process that in, in a sense creates a fragile self system or an internal sense of self that's very fragile. And it's particularly fragile uh, in the sense that it's that, that sense of self is dependent on the reflection it gets back from others or from a situation. And that dependency on reflection for, for self-validation is at the root of the myth of Narcissus. So this, this dials right into the, the, the development of narcissism, how to think about narcissism, and as I'll continue to explore in probably future talks, how the Dharma practice of seeing conditionality, specifically seeing essence-less, seeing that there is no essence at play within these processes, but just a, a series of causes and conditions that we may not fully be awake to. That's what's causing the, the, the cycle to continue. That in waking up to that, we can wake up out of these patterns and free ourselves from their, their pain, from their dukkha, and their toxicity. So um, I just, I'm really looking forward to this, this, this line of exploration and to continue it in the, in the podcast here. Um, but if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, and we need your support, we request your support, you can do that by sharing an episode, you can write a review on your favorite podcast app about the, about the show if you're a fan, um, you can practice along with me and Terry in our Riverbird online Sangha, which is a, a way to practice yin yoga, qigong, and meditation um, as three interwoven practices for realizing awakening and the everyday sublime in your daily life. Um, we have a sliding fee for membership in the Sangha. We also uh, run online trainings in yin yoga and meditation. So if any of that's in of interest to you, do check it out in the show notes. And we really appreciate your support. It means it's everything in a way. Uh, we're dependent on listener support. And um, we just thank you in advance. Now, without further ado, I bring you today's talk seeing and freeing patterns. So, um, for this evening's talk, um, as I try to do in general, <clears throat> I'll be trying to continue to weave in several themes that uh, really have been uh, brought up and explored to some degree already this year. Um, and one of those themes is a, a, a kind of a working framework for how to compassionately work with challenging energy that may arise in our practice in life. And um, as I've been saying, that, <clears throat> that compassionate framework is... Uh, very much influenced and based on a psychotherapeutic model called internal family systems, which recognizes that 
our inner world, our inner psychology is composed of multiple sub-personalities or multiple members of a kind of a cabinet or inner orchestra. And um, sometimes those sub-personalities get into a, a pattern of what we could largely or just broadly call a pattern of disharmony. They might get into conflict with each other or cause conflict for you and your life. Um, and I kind of want to just continue on with that, that reflection a little bit tonight. Um, if you've been paying attention, which I know many of you have, you know that the, the acronym I've been working with around this is the, the well-worn acronym in meditation and mindfulness communities known as RAIN. And I've, I put a little bit of a, you know, a top spin on the acronym RAIN in a personal way around um, changing what the letters signify. And um, the first letter that in the framework that I've been sharing is that R stands for receptivity, which I'll speak to again. Uh, A stands for alignment, where we align really our heart's intention to listen and be receptive compassionately to ourselves and our experience. Um, And from A to I, where we start to wholeheartedly inquire into uh, really the needs of these energies that are challenged within us. Um, And that speaks to the final letter. And so tonight's talk is gonna hover around the final letter N, um, which will, in this framework, I think stand for the word need. So really to, to establish what one's needs are, particularly the inner parts and their needs, and how from, the energy of core self, which I introduced last week, this energy of connectedness, confidence, creativity, clarity, other C words. Uh, But from a sense of core self, how do we effectively lead our inner symphony? Or how do we effectively lead our inner cabinet? So that uh, uh, really our inner world becomes in alignment with our heart's aspirations for how we want to engage with the world we find ourselves in. So that's the broad framework. Um, And then specifically, uh, last week, I believe I shared a a sort of a a nature observation, how I had gone on a walk with my dog. And when we came to a section of the driveway that had a view of our very small pond, how half the pond was obscured by the trees and half the pond was visible from this particular vantage point. And so we have the yin, the yin side, the shady side of the pond that I can't see and the, the yang side that I can see. But in, the, in the, the side of the pond that I could see, I noticed that there was a particular pattern of concentric ripples emanating from the side of the pond I couldn't see. And having studied this pond last year, since we moved in uh, and trying to be more sensitive and uh, aware of <clears throat> my natural environment, I knew that when I saw these concentric rings of ripples, that they were, um, in an instant, I knew that they were two mallard ducks swimming at the other end of the pond. And sure enough, when I advanced on the, on the driveway and I could see the entire pond, there they were. And the reason why I was trying to suggest that this is a in some ways, a, a, a helpful metaphor for how to think about our approach to spiritual practice and meditation in that 
just like a naturalist, someone who studies natural environments, natural ecosystems, um, a naturalist will study natural process, like just sort of in an unobtrusive way, just observe closely how elements of an environment interact with each other. Um, and I'm suggesting that in our in our Dharma practice, in our meditation journey, that's a a big part of what we're doing. We're sitting down for a prescribed period of time um, where we set the intention to study ourselves, study the nature, study the uh, natural expression of ourselves. What is our being like? And the idea is that just as in studying nature, uh, the more we study, the more we look, the more we listen, the more we observe, we'll start to see patterns of interaction, patterns of relationship, patterns of behavior, patterns of weather. And similarly with ourselves, as we uh, continue on with the meditative path, uh, the, the space of our practice you know, that the time that we carve out and, and, and devote to our practice, this space becomes a reflective space, like a mirror, that reflects the patterns of our being to us. And from you know, the, the theme that I'm also trying to weave through this is that the more we see and understand what it's like to be us from a direct experiential perspective, know, from our first person seat, the more we understand our patterns, the more we create the conditions of clarity, presence, creativity, compassion, to respond in a way that isn't predetermined by past conditioning, in a way that isn't predetermined by our reaction habit patterns. I know a lot of this is familiar to many of you. But it's helpful, I think, just to put it all in context again. And last week, I mentioned that um, there's a a running joke in probably many spiritual traditions that if at any point along your journey, at any point along your your path, you have some big mind-blowing experiences, you know, you, you get dunked into your what the Zen folks call your original nature, your original face, you get dunked into a dimension of being that is um, entirely different from your normal egoic sense of self, but yet it includes that egoic sense of self. And when when a practitioner, I'm sharing from my own experience, but commonly when a practitioner tastes these big dunks into an expanded being, um, it almost inevitably comes with a sense of, wow, things are different now. Things are different now, and things are going to be different forevermore. <laughs> wow, I, I think I turned a corner. Uh, certain kinds of dukkha, I just can't imagine with this level of equanimity that I have now, I can't imagine ever being ruffled or agitated or perturbed again. So the joke in these spiritual communities is if you ever think and if you're ever suspicious that you may have attained some degree of awakening or permanent state of awakening, the way to test that is to go spend some time with your family of origin. <laughs> and that brings me to my dad's visit 
<clears throat> before Christmas last year. Now, um, as I'll get into, uh, I, I should, from the beginning, let you know that I have a very working friendship with my father now that I'm grateful for. So there's, there's definitely signs of healing in this story. Um, but growing up, as I've hinted in some of the past talks, uh, the family ecosystem that I grew up in was fairly fraught. Um, there was a lot of psychological torment in, in various ways, which I received and also participated in. Um, <clears throat> but really, since I was, I don't know, about 16 or 17 years old, when I left home to go to, to uh, school for the first time, um, I had not spent <clears throat> one night under the same roof with my father in over 30 years. So before Christmas, um, sort of being quite optimistic, my, Terry and I invited him up and uh, that he would invite him to stay with us for two nights. And um, within a few hours of his arrival, Terry squeezed my elbow, pulled me aside and whispered, I get it now. I get it. He's suffocating me. I can't breathe when he's around. I can't handle this. You're on your own. <laughs> and she hightailed it out to uh, the local uh, mountain to go hike most of the day. And I said, I, believe me, I understand. But I said, Terry, I've done a lot of work. As you know, I've done a lot of work. I got this. I got this. <clears throat> so I was, I was playing host to my dad and we were you know, I was, I was for, for a while, especially the first day, I was very amused by uh, the patterns that I was seeing um, that I had, hadn't seen firsthand in so many years, but there's patterns that were just all too familiar and coming back. But by the second day, um, after I'd taken a hike with my dad and I was fixing us some sandwiches in the kitchen, um, I noticed that I was feeling suffocated, that he was kind of hovering around me and talking about every conceivable problem that he could imagine with our house and, and the property around our house. <laughs> Certain species of trees were invasive. They were going to take over things that uh, the, the boiler needed to be replaced. And da, 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 da. There was just an endless litany of things that I had not really thought about or ever worried about, but suddenly was feeling like very anxious about. And now here's the, here's the, the pond metaphor. So with the stillness of the pond, when the, when the surface water is, is, is calm, it's much easier to see disturbances from something that enters the pond. And I would say in, in our, particularly our, our yoga meditation practice, when we develop embodied listening, a real strong sense of embodied listening through yin yoga, qigong, sitting meditation, <clears throat> we develop what the kind of the fancy body world folks call interoception or interoception, which is awareness of your inner state, what it feels like within you. Get that, that capacity to be awake and aware to your inner state becomes stronger. And I've noticed this in myself that 
through my own pride. And I'm not, not saying this is any kind of great achievement, but there's definitely a correlation between years of practice and greater awareness of inner states of your body and being. So back to the kitchen, making lunch, my dad hovering, I became aware that my body had developed this incredibly global feeling of tension, like all the way from the back of my occiput running down my entire back through my hamstrings, like gastrocnemius to the uh, calcaneal tendon. It was just all just suddenly locked up and frozen and tight. And so there's just like really aroused state of tension. And I knew from interoception as well, awareness of interstates that my heartbeat, which is normally, you know, a calm, cool, placid 45 to 60 beats per minute was ticking away at a high simmer, at maybe 140. I was having a reaction, a strong reaction. And as all of you who practice yin yoga might appreciate, it's important to play your edge when you feel you're outside of your tolerance zone, outside of the zone of tolerance. And I realized that my tolerance to dad exposure had gotten to its upper limit. So I tried in my best polite way. I said, dad, would you mind sitting down by the fire while I can keep making these sandwiches and just give me a little space. I'm having a hard time focusing on buttering bread <laughs> with you around me. And my dad said, sheesh, apparently my, my, my um, ability to convey my need with kind, gentle tone was compromised. And there's an affect that came through. So he sits down and, and as he sits down, he kind of hurls a grenade over his shoulder and says, I thought you meditated. There it is. I mean, that's the, you know, you, if you think you have any attainment, go spend significant time with family. And if they know you meditate and you get irritated, it's almost a spiritual law of conversation that the family member will throw that little grenade and say, don't you do, I thought you did yoga. I Don't you meditate? Is, do you think it's working? Is, are you supposed to be Mr. Calm? What's, why are you so worked up? What's the big deal? Why are you so wound up and tight? Reflecting on, you know, this, so after my dad visited, I, I spent some, a lot of time in self-reflection around the patterns that I was seeing in him. And <clears throat> the more I reflected on it, these patterns started to feel like ominous parallels, ominous parallels with patterns I could see in myself. And I wrote to a dear friend of mine who was a really a second father figure to me. This is a, a man that grew up next door to me and um, was a, for most of his life, he was a restorative architect. And he had this garage off the side of his house where he had all his wood shop tools and um, people in the, in the town would just hire him to do additions or recon reconstructions to their house, remodeling and that sort of thing. And he was a real craftsman, but he was also a great, and is a great writer. 
And he and I, his name is Joe. Joe and I have um, had a a lifelong correspondence since my late teens till now, um, all through the years of when I've traveled. Um, and that correspondence has been a real nourishing uh, fact of my life. And it's part of the rationale, I should add, for the Kalyana Mitra Pen Pal program that we established, just because I've seen how, how nourishing and valuable a good correspondent in one's life can be. But I wrote to my friend Joe and I said, <clears throat> after my dad's visit, I said, the following thing struck me with a leveling humility. After nearly three decades of introspecting, i.e. meditating and doing yoga, after three decades with various yoga disciplines, and after about half as long of talking to a therapist about all of this stuff, my own equanimity was as vulnerable as ever to the self-oblivious narcissism of my father. Sure, he's as harmless as a housefly now, I said, but the sound of his buzz still precipitates an inner state of crisis that I can't quite understand or control. Furthermore, I said, in studying the post-mortem analysis of my occasional in my occasional conflicts with Terry, one thing I can see is this. Most, if not all, of the conflicts originate in my behavior that is itself directly derivative of Jimbo's behavior. Now, my dad's name is Jim. People, Joe, in fact, nicknamed him uh, kind of harshly, but with the nickname Jimbo. So in certain family ch channels of communication, that, that name comes up. <laughs> but I said to my friend Joe, I said, hear me clearly. I am not assigning blame. I'm not blaming the old man. I'm simply acknowledging what I'm being forced to see. Forced to see, I, I said, kicking and thrashing against my own self-image. I was forced to see the overwhelming, ominous parallels. I'm well aware, I'm well aware that poets, playwrights, novelists, and pop singers have all dipped into this very theme. The sensitive son who vows to never repeat the errors of the old man, only to discover with tragic horror, the son has indeed become the old man. I cannot impress upon you, I said to my friend, I cannot impress upon you how queer this dawning consciousness feels. Eating food, sipping tea, planning a day, talking about the news, all these normal quotidian activities now feel infused with Jimbo's consciousness. <laughs> Staring through my eyes, moving through my limbs, forming through my words, the clever film, if you've seen it, the clever film being John Malkovich, seizes this idea. But for me, this is an indefinite nightmare of being Jimbo. <laughs> now, I mentioned the word narcissism there. And I first learned about narcissism, first became, I should say, really conscious of it, 
when I started therapy over 20 years ago, my first, it was like my first round of therapy. And I came back from Burma and met my therapist and teacher, Jack Engler. And Jack, when he framed it to me, he, he said, you know, you have to understand the dynamics that shape or the conditioning that shapes the narcissistic personality. And to help me understand that, and you, I'm hoping I should say here, I'm not saying any of you are narcissists, but the, the broader theme is how experience, historical experience from our own lives conditions consciousness and how that conditioning affects our life. And you can extrapolate, and I'll be doing this going forward. You can extrapolate from the kind of conditioning I'm talking about in this talk around narcissism to the conditioning around racialization to the conditioning around environmental exploitation, that there's a similarity in these conditioning developments. At least that's what I'm, I'm suggesting. So when I um, was with starting that, that, that work in therapy with Jack Engler, he referred to me a wonderful book by the Swiss psychologist, Alice Miller, called The Drama of the Gifted Child which some of you probably are hip to too. And it's been a while since I've read that book. I haven't read it in 20 years or so. Um, but I did a little Google search and looked up something on psychology today about the book. And the author of this article said, sort of in summary, sum, summarizing Alice Miller, her work here, she describes the, this drama of the gifted child where the child attunes to the parent's needs. The gifted, the smart, curious, creative child attunes their needs to the parents and in a sense, ignores their own needs. The quotation is, in becoming the perfect child of her parents' dreams, the gifted child loses something very precious. She loses her true self. And in becoming her parents' ideal child, she locks away her true feelings and loses the key. According to Miller, according to the psychologist, the gifted child is um, of, of this type of in situation, that this gifted child stops growing. And I'll, I'll try to speak to that a little bit more, how the growing stops. But... <laughs> Um, because they cannot develop and differentiate their true self, they feel empty, emotionally isolated, and quote-unquote, psychologically homeless. In adulthood, the child who has always tried to please his parents or their parents is constantly looking to others for approval. So, when I first mentioned the word narcissism, you know, I, I thought about starting this talk. If I, if I say the word narcissism, who's the first narcissist you think of? What pops to mind? Probably some egomaniacal, toxic, self-focused person with a lot of other toxic things in their mix. But what this psychological framework is trying to point to 
is that a narcissist doesn't have essential narcissistic nature. The narcissist is a product or a process that has been conditioned by life events at formative years in their life. In this case, the child trying to please parental expectations, subjugating their own needs. And so it's, it's not so much that the narcissist is just self-centered and ego, like really ego, like an egomaniac. It's that they have an incredibly fragile self-image that is dependent on a good reflection back from an audience, i.e. primarily in the beginning, a good reflection back from the parent. And in the myth, if you know the myth of Narcissus, Narcissus falls in love with his reflection in the water. So it's, it's that reflection that's needed to validate the self's image or validate a sense of self. But it's very, very fragile because if your sense of self is dependent on a good reflection back, that's not internally generated core self energy. That's externally dependent sense of validation. Now, I just want to throw this in there, but early on when I worked with this therapist, Jack, he said to me, Something very curious. Now he was he's on he was on faculty at Harvard and had I just want to remind everyone he had done his PhD looking at cognitive psychological changes that occur with deep stages of spiritual development as defined in a particular uh, early Buddhist tradition. So and he had traveled to India and worked with very highly realized students of Deepama, the woman in Calcutta. But Jack said, in, you know, so in the context of all his experience of working with spiritual practitioners of all flavors, he said something very interesting. He says, one of the most common psychological types that's drawn to spirituality is the narcissistic personality. And, you know, he said that I, I kind of did this like. <laughs> who, are you, who are you talking about there? You know, you're not talking, you're you hoping you're not talking about me. That my dad's the narcissist. Let's, let's be clear about that. Not, not me. But the way he said it was or explained it was that in a sense, if the narcissist tries to or needs their self-validation through reflection, what better way to get the reflection you want than by becoming fully enlightened. As Jack put it, he says, the hope in spirituality is that one day you'll be able to look at your, your face in the mirror and not be disgusted. So uh, what I'm trying to get to is that our consciousness is conditioned. This is something the Buddha talked about a lot, how our, condition, our consciousness is conditioned by certain conditions and um, how that, that becomes a kind of lens. The conditioning process becomes a lens for how we see and understand and make sense and navigate our way through the world. But in reflecting on this particular dynamic, 
in me and in my dad and others. I have personally identified, and this is not born out of born out of any kind of psychological study. I'm not talking about psychological theory from an academic perspective. I'm, I'm talking about how I've come to understand this in myself. But I've seen that because of this self, this fragile self-image that needs validation from reflection, there's a, a, a loose network of four drives or four personality parts that kind of feed into this dynamic. And the first one being that because this personality type needs a reflection, that requires performance. So the narcissistic type has a kind of performative style, which you may have noticed in your guide here, (laughs) reading letters and reading yeah. anyway there's a there's a performance side and performance where you you're performing in a way to get the attention and reflection back you want or this like you're seeking reflection of approval and with that performative agenda or that performative style comes the other side of that performance which is anxiety the anxiety but that is scanning for signs of disapproval, signs of criticism that don't match the image that you have of yourself or that I have of myself. And both the performance, the the attempt to perform well, and the anxiety that it comes with that performance are both in a way trying to mask and keep away the shame the mortifying shame that comes when we get a reflection that's nowhere near what we want or nowhere near that, that matches our image. And if you've ever been around someone like this, you know that if they do trip, if they do stumble in some way and they get called out, that trip meaning the 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 falling short in their person in 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 how they engage that can often trigger what's called narcissistic injury the image of the self is 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 injured and that in itself can trigger a more uh, difficult emotional response of rage where is that quote again Because they cannot develop and differentiate their true self, they feel empty, emotionally isolated, and homeless. The adult of the child who is always trying to please their parents is constantly looking for others or to others for approval. Some of you know, a dear friend of mine passed away a couple of years ago. Um, his name is Michael Brooks. And I'm finally at the phase, I think, of my, my grief of his death that I can go now and watch his YouTube videos from his wonderful show, The Michael Brooks Show. I've finally been able to read his book that he wrote before he uh, passed called Against the Web. It's a sort of a treatise or a manifesto on a, on a new vision of socialism. He was, very, he was very politically minded. But Michael 
um, the reason I'm bringing this up, Michael was also a gifted comic and he had a whole range of comedic voices and, and, and um, kind of caricatures of famous people that he would imitate. And I remember one of the last times I really spent a, a good night with Michael out. At one point, he flipped into his Bill Clinton voice. Here's the performance, too. It's, it's acknowledged. It says, there's three things you need to know about Josh. And the first thing is that he's grandiose. And the second thing is that, well, he's narcissistic. And the third, which is connected to the first and the second, the third is that he's a whiny bitch. Now, the grandiosity, he just has, he has these messiah-like ideas about himself. But that's all because of his narcissism. He's trying to get the reflection he wants back. He's constantly absorbed and seeking approval. But when he doesn't get the approval he wants, goddamn, he's a whiny bitch. So there's three things there about Josh. Rest in peace, Michael Brooks. So as I shared sort of maybe a month or so back, um, after my dad's visit, after seeing myself go through some suboptimal cycles, that's the euphemism we call <laughs> inner turmoil, uh, suboptimal cycles of behavior, and getting back into therapy again to do some part work in the internal family systems model, I really started to see finally how these subpersonalities, these subparts may still be wounded and in their wounded state are still wound around the primary conditions of the early trauma. So that when 30 years later, that buzzing sound in the kitchen triggers and in a whole cascade of traumatic response in the body and mind. And again, like my dad, we may all be tempted to think, I thought you meditated. And if come back to the idea of the pond, I want to propose that it's practice it's a fully, it's a full-blooded practice, a commitment to practice and relationship with others that deepens our understanding of our patterns and creates the conditions whereby we can really start to awaken to these patterns and to, in studying them contemplatively, establish new, uh, more life-affirming, uh, conducive to thriving patterns of being. And so that's the, that's the lead-in to the framework that I began with, which is that in our practice, just to review, particularly in this yin approach to meditation, the idea is to begin with a, a sense of compassionate receptivity that we're receiving 
what our experience is like, what our history is like, what our patterns are like, what our thoughts and fears are like. We receive this so that we can compassionately align our energy to understand them, to see them more clearly, to understand them. And again, the, the word compassion is, is threaded here because compassion holds the intention to reduce or relieve suffering. And I'm only speaking about it at the, at the level of our inner world. But, and, I, and I, I keep trying to underline this, I think the process of relieving suffering internally recapitulates itself when we think about how to relieve suffering in the world. I mean, the same kind of dynamics are at play in terms of bringing compassionate receptivity to the problem, compassionate alignment to really uh, receive and, and, and unify your presence around the problem. And then the eye of inquiry to listen to what these energies need. And that's the, that's the end of the, the RAIN acronym. And I'll, I'll fill this in more as we continue. Um, but the, the need, I'll just sort of speculate here. I think the need of these parts of ourselves that are challenged or are still wound or wounded, the need is for core self, the self of wholesome qualities that we're cultivating in practice. These subparts need core self to lead the way. Meaning, as I try to suggest, these parts really develop at very early early stages in our life. Or, and they can, of course, can get morphed or re reformed or reshaped or repatterned later in life too. But our early life is, is hugely influential on this conditioning process. And so they adapt, they develop and adapt at a certain point in time to protect us when we didn't have any other skills available. But the, in some ways, the medicine of this practice, the, the, the medicine of the Buddha Dharma, is that we nourish these really wholesome qualities of being or characteristics of being, confidence, calmness, creativity, courage, clarity, compassion, connectedness. We nourish these qualities of core self so that we can receive, integrate, nourish, and transform, and really unburden. That's the key word that comes up in IFS work or internal family work. We unburden these early adaptive parts that are now maladaptive. We unburden them from what they're trying to hold so that their energy can flow into our life in the direction that our hearts are aligned. So that's a little description, I hope, about an, an example of how I've seen conditioning of consciousness in my own life, from childhood to now. And even though I learned about narcissism over 20 years ago, Conceptual knowledge of something is not enough to transform the heart. And it's taken me 20 years 
to get to the point where I feel like I'm just really getting a handle on this dynamic. And yes, I've been meditating the whole time. And I'm saying, trying to suggest I'm aware of this as a, as a virtue of the meditation or as a benefit of the meditation, not as a sign that the meditation has failed me and I'm a lousy Buddhist. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that talk. You know, I didn't say this in the intro, but I should have mentioned it, that as I'm sharing about my conditioning around narcissism and the narcissistic elements within my personality, what I'm really trying to get into here is I'm exposing and exploring what I've come to see as part of my shadow, the aspects of my consciousness that have been repressed or exiled, um, not allowed into the image that my persona wants to have of who I am. Um, spiritual practice, psychotherapy, and relationship have been ways that my shadow has come into more focus for me. And I would say in integrating, in coming to more of a whole relationship to my persona and shadow has been an enormously healing and I would say the word I might use is vitalizing experience, that there's an energy that's released when these fragmented parts of ourselves are integrated and healed. So I'm speaking about that now more and um, it's something I've wanted to explore in the podcast. If you look at my podcast art, implicit in the art is the notion of our being made of many levels and uh, we can have shadow elements embedded deep in our being and we have our Buddha element of awareness and the path as I see it in broad strokes is how do we integrate it all and live a thriving, flourishing life. So Thanks for listening today. Um, do check out uh, the opportunity to practice with me and Terry in the show notes. You can practice yin yoga, qigong, and meditation with us from the comfort of your home, own home over Zoom. And we uh, really look forward to practicing with you. So uh, take good care. Keep practicing. Stay strong. Stay safe. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. All the best.